The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. And available Pro Power Onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Those who fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Most of the internet and uh, most of the world seems to believe that Sir Winston Churchill came up with that famous quote. Uh, he did not. The phrase was actually, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it, and it was 20th century Spanish-American philosopher George Santayana who wrote it and said it. The quote also shows up as, the one who does not remember history is bound to live through it again, on a plaque that has been translated from Polish to English at the Auschwitz concentration camp in Poland, and as those who do not learn from history are doomed to repeat it on a veteran's memorial plaque in Rome, Texas. Pretty ironic that a quote about not remembering the past is chronically misattributed and misquoted. Good example of how fragile the past and our memory of it truly is. It's so easy to forget, so easy to only half remember, so easy to intentionally purge the memories of events and deeds that don't add evidence to the narrative that we're a good person, that we don't commit horrible acts or condone them or enable them by not doing anything to stop them. Today, we take a deep dive into a subject Japan's government and its people tried so very hard to forget, a horrific tragedy that nearly was buried and forgotten. Eyewitnesses were killed, documentation burned, acknowledgement and admittance of wrongdoing refused. Japan, who itself had been the victim of unspeakable World War II tragedy with the atomic bombings of Hiroshima and Nagasaki, amongst other atrocities, had been committing savage acts of its own. War is fucking ugly. It's violent and brutal by nature. But even in war, you can take things too far. Beyond the limit of any sort of moral justification whatsoever. The Holocaust is a great example of crossing this line. And today's topic, Unit 731, is another. I know all these episodes are inappropriate to a certain degree, but like episode 57, The Butcher of Rostov, Andre Chikatilo, this one is especially gruesome. As in, it's hard to get more gruesome 
than this one. So get out now if occasional graphic descriptions of extreme human suffering is just not something you want floating around in your noggin. Still in? All right. Well, then get ready for today's tragic, vile, horrific, and I think important edition of Time Suck. You're listening to Time Suck. Welcome to Time Suck, Time Suckers. Hello, fellow members of the Cult of the Curious. I'm Dan Cummins, and this is the 1300 iTunes Review Bonus Edition episode of Time Suck. Hope you had a good Thanksgiving. Uh, Be thankful that Unit 731 is still not operating. If you can't think of anything else to be thankful for this Thanksgiving season. Uh, thanks for all the iTunes and re- Facebook reviews this past week. Thanks for following the suck on social media. Special thanks to Super Sucker Harmony Velikamp uh, for taking it upon herself to open and manage some new social media sites for Time Suckers. Uh, she runs at uh, Secret Space Lizards on Instagram and Facebook, and I believe Snapchat as well. I don't have Snapchat uh, yet, <laughs> so I'll get I'll get that eventually. And yeah, and she's doing all that all that herself, spreading the suck. Uh, I'm thankful for. For uh, having people like Harmony, you know, behind Time Suck. I'm thankful for having an amazing family, uh, this, you know, who I love dearly and are, and are so supportive. And I'm also truly thankful for all you Time Suckers out there constantly offering your time and talents, constantly spreading the suck. Yeah, I'm recording this a couple days before Thanksgiving. If you're like, Thanksgiving's already over. Well, I'm, I'm thankful now. And even if, it was, even if I was recording this actually uh, on Friday, I'd still be thankful. Uh, thanks to those of you who follow the show on Instagram, at Time Suck Podcast. And those of you who signed up for the app beta test on Monday, sorry uh, to those of you who didn't get in. I didn't announce it on this show because BitElixir, uh, the app design guys, they only needed about 50 testers. I, th- I think they ended up getting several hundred responses, uh, and, and that was just from a quick Instagram post uh, kind of right away. And so thank you guys for, for being so quick to jump on that. And now, you know, you guys can, can help debug this new uh, phase one of the new app and, and get it ready for everybody on December 4th. I'm feeling pretty confident that's going to happen. And again, that release will just be the first basic version. It's going to have a player, a couple fun little things. Uh, no Space Lizard stuff quite yet. That'll be coming, though. Uh, th- that's already being designed as well. A uh, huge thank you to Tom and Dan, man, uh, from the awesome podcast, A Mediocre Time with Tom and Dan. I was just thinking about them the past few days. These are the guys who encouraged me to do this podcast in the first place. They encouraged me to start making merch, told me what recording equipment to use, told me to develop an app, told me to work with Danger Brain for all my merch, you know. Uh, and it's branding. If, if, if this podcast becomes the foundation uh, of my future career, fueling my stand-up and everything else, which it could, uh, if it continues to become this cult of the curious clubhouse slash tribe we're developing, I have them to thank. They kicked it off uh, by encouraging me so early on before it was even a thing at all. Now, if this implodes and eventually uh, ruins me and burns me out and takes down my career, those are the first two motherfuckers I'm going to murder. So Tom and Dan, uh, heroes? Possible future murder victims. Uh, seriously, though, uh, as the app release draws near, as Danger Brain Design merch gets ready to come out, I just think about those guys, you know, getting me going and helping me along the way a ton. Uh, they are podcast OGs and they're amazing. Also, Time Suck is on Spotify, if you didn't see that on Instagram. Currently, it's only on the Spotify app, not the desktop version. Not sure how those decisions are made. Uh, for some reason, it only shows up when you search for it, but damn it, uh, it is there. And I'm looking into how to get it more visibility and show up in the proper categories and all that kind of stuff. So, but it's there. It's there. So, if you're a Spotify user, I know that's the main place I was not on that people wanted me to be on. And I was trying for months and now it's, now it's happened. Also, now through Cyber Monday, 25% off everything in the store at timesuckpodcast.com and the Shopify store. So, once a year sale, not going to see deals like this again through me uh, until next year. And again, it's going now through Black Friday. So, use the promo code Hail Nimrod upon checkout to get 25% off. 
Uh, so, and when you're doing uh, Amazon shopping for Cyber Monday, please think about Time Suck. Stop by timesuckpodcast.com. Click the Amazon button there. You get redirected back to Amazon. doesn't cost you a penny. And then you support the suck while you're shopping for yourself. And uh, more of you buying tickets to the Detroit show on February 16th, 2018. Thank you, thank you, thank you. That show with the magic bag. Only need a few more tickets sold in the next week or so uh, to add a live podcast uh, that evening. So please keep pre-buying those tickets. Please keep letting your Detroit area people know uh, so we can get a small town murder and time suck hybrid swap cast going that evening. I really want to do that. Going to be at Dr. Grin's in Grand Rapids, Michigan, November 30th through December 2nd. St. Louis Funny Bone in St. Louis, December 7th through the 10th. Appleton, Wisconsin, one night only. December 13th, Skyline Comedy Club. I'll be at Comedy Club on State in Madison, Wisconsin, December 14th through the 16th. And then Comedy Works in Denver, Colorado, December 28th through New Year's Eve. And 2018 tour dates, man, rolling in. Uh, need to get them on the calendar. Going to do that soon. Show's coming up fast. Indianapolis, Providence, Rhode Island, Baltimore, Philly, Chicago, Cleveland, Brea, San Francisco, Sacramento, Charlotte, Atlanta, Birmingham, Huntsville, Nashville, Phoenix, Tampa, Miami, New York City. Right there in Manhattan. So much more. Please come support me. Get those tickets. I'll be working on a bunch of new material at those shows. And now, let us get really, really black this Black Friday. Real dark with some Unit 731. Okay, so before we dig into the how in the shit did Unit 731 even come about, let's dig into the uh, what the hell it was. Before Time Suck came along uh, and you Time Sucker started sending me your topic requests, so many of which are dark, uh, you love the taboo as much as I do, I, I uh, to the best of my memory, had never heard of Unit 731. I actually think Wikipedia gives the best, uh, kind of be- best basic summary of what Unit 731 was. Uh, incidentally, I, I do think that's what Wikipedia does best, basic summaries. I don't think you should ever use it as a primary source for any sort of research, but it's a wonderful place to get an initial feel for a subject. And then from there, you can usually find academic papers, research books, other footnotes, articles, first-hand interviews, etc. A lot of them are footnoted in the Wikipedia if you just, you know, see those little numbers and click down to the bottom and go to those links. Uh, and, and here's what the free online user-edited encyclopedia has to say. Uh, Unit 731 is a group of 731 units, a unit being defined as an individual thing or person regarded as a single and complete, uh, as single and complete, but which can also form an individual component of a larger or more complex whole. And so, when all 731 units join together, they form Voltron, defender of the universe, a mighty robot loved by good, feared by evil. No. No, that's not what uh, Unit 731 was at all, sadly. That was just a random part of my childhood. That was just Voltron. Uh, It's the fucking worst, is what it is, actually. Here's the real uh, Wikipedia summary. Unit 731 was a covert biological and chemical warfare research and development unit of the Imperial Japanese Army that undertook lethal human experimentation during the Second uh, Sino-Japanese War from 1937-1945. It was responsible for some of the most notorious war crimes carried out by Imperial Japan. Unit 731 was based at the Pingfang district of Harbin, the largest city in the Japanese puppet state of Manchukuo, uh, now northwest or northeast, excuse me, China. It was officially known as the Epidemic Prevention and War Purification Department of the Kwantung Army uh, of the Kwantung Army, originally set up under the Kempeitai Military Police of the Empire of Japan. Unit 731 was taken over and commanded until the end of the war by General Shiro Ishii. Uh, a combat medic officer in the Kwantung Army. The facility itself was built between 1934 and 1939 and officially adopted the name Unit 731 in 1941. 
and at least 3,000 men, women, and children, from which uh, at least 600 every year were provided by the Kenpai Tai, Japanese Imperial Army Police, were designated as logs. Yeah, that's the term Unit 731 used for experimental uh, subjects. They weren't people. You know, they, were, they, were, they were logs to be chopped down, burned, used however they saw fit for the greater glory of, J- of Japan. Oh, and by the way, the quick note uh, before I finish the Wikipedia thing, uh, General Shiro Ishii did kind of, he started Unit 731. So he, he didn't come in. That was, uh, I think Wikipedia got that wrong. But anyway, going uh, everything else seems to be legit based on all the other stuff I read. And these 3,000 logs uh, were subjected to unholy experimentation uh, conducted at Unit 731 at the base at the camp based in Pingfang. Other logs were tortured at other medical experimentation sites, such as Unit 100. Uh, and there were lots of other sites. Unit 731 participants who survived the war attest that most of the victims they experimented on were Chinese, while a small percentage were Soviet, Mongolian, Korean, and other allied POWs, including British and American soldiers. The unit received generous support from the Japanese government up to the end of the war in 1945. And then, at the war's end, instead of being tried for war crimes after the war, the researchers involved in Unit 731 were secretly given immunity by the United States government in exchange for the data they gathered through human experimentation. Man, talk about a deal with the fucking devil. Uh, Americans did not try the researchers so that the information and experience gained in bioweapons could be co-opted into the U.S. biological warfare program, as it happened with Nazi researchers Nazi researchers in Operation Paperclip. Yeah, man, Operation Paperclip, that is another dark topic, especially about the history of the U.S. that we could explore down the road if the will of the cult of the curious calls for it. Lucifina loves shit like Operation Paperclip in today's episode. Makes her positively giddy with evil joy. Yeah, man, the U.S. has its own uh, terrible history of biological weapons manufacturing and also of disgusting medical experiments on innocent people. See the Tuskegee uh, syphilis experiments for that one. Not as bad as what we're going to talk about today, but still very, very, very bad. Uh, Back to Wikipedia, on May 6, 1947, Douglas MacArthur, as Supreme Commander of the Allied Forces, wrote to Washington that additional data, possibly some statements from Ishii, probably can be obtained by informing Japanese involved that information will be retained in intelligence channels and will not be employed as war crimes evidence. Victim accounts were then largely ignored or dismissed in the West as communist propaganda. So the deals were made. The monsters were allowed to go about their lives when the war was over. Uh, They were still allowed to practice medicine. Uh, which is beyond insane once you hear about what they actually did. So that's a quick overview. Now let's get into the history in a lot more depth and detail. Let's suck into this episode, uh, starting off with a with a time-suck timeline. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time-suck timeline. June 17th, 1925, the Geneva Convention. Let's go back to the very beginning of the modern era's somewhat universal stance regarding biological weapons in general, uh, humanity against them. Most people not in favor of using chemicals, gases, diseases to kill innocent men, women, children, uh, along with enemy soldiers in a war crime uh, or wartime or any kind, of, any kind of time situation. At the end of World War I, the victorious allies decided to reaffirm the Versailles Treaty of 1919, uphold the pre-war prohibition of the use of poisonous gases, No gassing, people. Shooting? Can't be avoided. Stabbing? Yeah, it's gonna happen sometimes. Bombing? Of course. A lot of bombing. Nukes? What are those? Poking people to death with tiny, sharp sticks? Not advisable. Questionable in its effectiveness. But if you can pull it off, what, you know, more power to you. But no gassing. Enough with the gas already. It's not decent. We're trying to kill each other, but in an orderly manner. Drawn upon the language uh, of these former peace treaties, the United States, uh, 
at the Washington uh, Disarmament, Disarmament Conference of 1922, took the initiative of introducing a similar provision into a treaty on submarines and noxious gases. The U.S. Senate gave its advice and consent to ratification of this treaty without a dissenting vote. It never entered into force, however, since French ratification was necessary, and France objected to the submarine provisions. That's, that's weird. I guess France, France was just like, but, but we like the submarines very, very much. We like how they go under the water and are quite sneaky. We, oui. if you cannot stop our submarines, then that is your problem. We are not getting rid of them. In France, we care about our wine, we care about our cheese, and we care about our submarines. It is every French citizen's dream to enjoy a fine Cabernet Sauvignon with some lightly aged brie, 50 meters below the ocean surface. How would we produce Jacques Cousteau with no submarines? I feel like my French accent got a little better as it went on, but I know it was still shit. Uh, I have no idea why France was so adamant about submarines, actually. Not important to today's narrative, so I didn't really spend uh, uh, an hour or two trying to figure that the hell out. But they were, they were like, that's where they drew the line. So that one never went into effect. And then at the 1925, or excuse me, 1925 Geneva Conference for the Supervision of International Traffic in Arms, uh, the U.S. took an initiative of seeking to prohibit the ex export of gases for use in war. At French suggestion, it was decided to draw up a protocol on non-use of poisonous gases, and at the suggestion of Poland, uh, the prohibition was extended to bact uh, bacteriological weapons. Now, Polish people have long hated bacteriological weapons. They uh, historically hate bacteria, uh, just kind of period, since genetically they are unable to defend themselves from bacterial infections. People who are genetically uh, purely Polish lack the enzyme needed to fight off bacteria. That's why Polish people get sick a lot. That's why a lot of them look, that's why a lot of Polish people look very sickly. However, they do have four times the amount of enzymes a person needs to uh, blow the fucking roof off a Pocoho down, huh? And they have ten times the enzymes required to play a fucking accordion. Oh, they can tear that shit up. It's in their blood. Now, I didn't realize any of that until recently when I just made it all up. And if you're like, if you're like, if you're Polish, and you're like, hey, fucking fuck you for calling us sickly. My wife's Polish, so I like to take shots sometimes. Uh, but the U.S., French, and Poles did help put together this proposal. I should, I should correct myself. She's half Polish, so she's half sickly. Zing! Another one. I never say zing. Why did I just do that? I just, I said zing, and then as it came out of my mouth, I was like, "Shut the! What are you doing? Who's that's? No one says that anymore." Anyway, signed on June 17, 1925, the Geneva Protocol thus restated the prohibition previously laid down by the Versailles and Washington Treaties and added a ban on bacteriological warfare. No gases, no diseases, damn it. Fight fair. Before World War II, this protocol was ratified by many countries, including all the great powers of the world, except, interesting for today, the U.S. and Japan. Crazy, right? In the end, we were just like, you know what? On second thought, we may want to gas the rest of you fuckers. So uh, we're going to hold off on the sign-in for the time being. Uh, when they ratified or acceded to the protocol, some nations, including the UK, France, and the USSR, declared that it would cease to be binding on them if their enemies or the allies of their enemies failed to respect the prohibitions of the protocol. Although Italy was party to the protocol, it used poison gas in the Ethiopian War. Uh, nevertheless, the protocol was generally observed in World War II. But yeah, but a lot of people, even the ones that signed it, were like, we're not going to use them. Unless someone uses them on us, then we're going to fucking use the shit out of them. Uh, referring to reports that the Axis powers were considering the use of gas since they didn't sign it, uh, President Roosevelt said on June 8, 1943, Use of such weapons has been outlawed by the general opinion of civilized mankind. This country has not used them, and I hope that we never will be compelled to use them. I state categorically 
that we shall under no circumstances resort to the use of such weapons, unless they are first used by our enemies. And then behind closed doors, after a few drinks, FDR added, at least in my head, if the goddamn Germans make one more crack about my wheelchair, I'll gas and poison every Nazi man, woman, and child, especially the children. God, what I wouldn't give to mustard gas the fuck out of an Aryan baby right now. Who knows? Maybe he said that. Maybe FDR was salty and crazy after one too many old fashions. We don't know everything he said. The U.S. wouldn't agree to, uh, to not use biological or bacterial weapons until 1975, actually, which is crazy to me. And then it only agreed under the caveat that it wouldn't use them unless an enemy used them first, kind of like those other countries did earlier. You know, in that case, again, it was game on. And why didn't the U.S. sign up? Well, because we have a history of thinking the rules don't apply to us. If you really want to get down to it, it's a very American attitude, man. Your little country doesn't get to have nuclear weapons. Uh-uh. No, you can't handle them. You know, and if you try to acquire any, we'll sanction the shit out of you, maybe even invade. But we get them. Why? Well, because we're fucking America and because shut the fuck up. That's why. Because might makes right. Same for biological weapons. Uh, you don't get any, but we're going to go ahead and start making some in case we need to attack you into oblivion. Uh, the U.S. would introduce a biological weapons program that would continue for at least 25 years that we know of. And Japan, they weren't signing anything either because they were already fucking messing around with, uh, you know, thinking about biological weapons. And, uh, you know, they possessed the same arrogance, at least pre-World War II, before they had their asses handed to them, uh, you know, that we do now. They had might, and they weren't going to play by the same rules. And if you don't like it, tough shit. So 1932. 1932, a young and ambitious Japanese physician and army officer and monster and devil... An evil incarnate, Shiro Ishii, not bound by the Geneva Protocols protocols, or any sense of, I don't know, wow, I should not be fucking doing this because this is messed up, uh, begins performing preliminary experiments in germ warfare shortly after Japan invades Manchuria. On September 18th, 1931, in an, event, in, an, in an event known now as the Manchurian Incident, Japan seized the Manchurian city of Mukden, uh, now Shenyang, uh, in the uh, Liaoning province in China, and then quickly invaded all of Manchuria, now northeast China, and established the Japanese-dominated puppet state of Manchukuo. Now, Manchukuo, uh, yeah, was a puppet state created in 1932 by Japan out of three historic provinces of Manchuria. And after the Russo-Japanese War of 1904-1905, remember that one from the Rasputin time suck? That was at, uh, when the last Russian czar, Nicholas I, his image already weakened greatly in the eyes of the Russian people because uh, of his wife's belief that only the crazy, uh, sex-obsessed, bug-eyed Rasputin could keep their hemophiliac son alive. When, uh, when Nicholas got his ass kicked by Japan, it greatly accelerated his demise and the end of the Russian imperial rule. Well, after that war, Japan gained control of the Russian-built South Manchurian Railway, and its army established a presence in that region, you know, using the train to get the troops in there, yeah. And all their, uh, you know, goods expansion there was seen as necessary for Japan's status in emer as an emerging world power. In 1931, the Japanese army attacked Chinese troops. In 1932, Manchukuo was proclaimed an independent state. Uh, the last Qing emperor was brought out of retirement and made Manchukuo's ruler, but the state was originally controlled by the Japanese. He was a ruler in name only, uh, who used it as their base for expansion into Asia. They had plans, man. They had plans for some domination. With all the focus on Hitler and the, and the Germans in World War II, it's easy to forget that Japan was also making a play to remake the world in its image. They were a force to be reckoned with, man. In the 30s? Fuck yeah. Like the Nazis, uh, there was nothing they wouldn't do to win the war, including biological warfare. Unlike Roosevelt, they weren't going to wait for someone else to make the first move, right? Before they were able to uh, use biological weapons, they, they needed to develop them first. And uh, in an example of just ice-cold pragmatism, 
They needed guinea pigs to make their weapons the most effective weapons they could be. They needed to test weapons on the same animals that they would be used on in the field, humans. Scientifically, the best way to test a new weapon's effectiveness at destroying a human being is by, you know, well, using it on a human being and finding out firsthand how well it destroys them. So now, okay, back to, back to General Ishii, the dark mastermind behind Unit 731. Uh, he's really like the, the, Jap- the Japanese Mengele, man. Uh, a little suck within a suck on him. Uh, he was born on June 25th, 1892, about two hours from Tokyo, to a family wealthy by local village standards. In 1916, he entered uh, Kyoto Imperial University, which was a prestigious institute of higher learning with a medical department known for advancements in bacteriology. Uh, Ishii received his doctorate in medicine in 1911, graduating with honors. However, despite being a good student, not well liked by his peers. Uh, he developed a reputation as someone who was pushy, inconsiderate, selfish, and he used these traits to climb the academic and then the medical ladder. Uh, in short, you know, going all the way back to episode four of Time Suck, he was a fucking sociopath. Uh, he enlisted in the army in 1920, was commissioned a lieutenant, transferred to the first army hospital in Tokyo in 1922. Uh, he married the head of Kyoto Imperial University's daughter, cementing his position there as a top-tier bacterial researcher. When the Geneva Convention uh, made using bacterial weapons essentially a war crime, uh, Ishii's hate and evil boner grew to new diabolical dimensions. It was now four to five inches long. He became convinced of the potential devastating effectiveness of its use in war. He got real into it. Uh, if it was so dangerous that it needed to be banned, he knew it could be a powerful weapon to spread the glory of Imperial Japan. He had already been thinking in, about developing biological weapons. Now he was certain he could use his knowledge to help Japan gain worldwide military you know, domination. You know, He pressed the military to allow him to head a new agency focusing on uh, biological weapon development. Up until that point, the Japanese army had been you know, kind of super weird about medical research regarding infectious diseases. They actually wanted their doctors to use skills, you know, doctoring skills, uh, to heal soldiers, not infect other people. You know, crazy, right? Uh, but Ishii promoted the advantages of the silent weapons of disease and poison. You know, it made the uh, kind of the upper top brass realize that it would be cheaper to develop bacteria and poison gas than it would be to develop other kind of more conventional weaponry. Again, just ice cold pragmatism. What would be the cheapest way to kill millions of people uh, and risk the least Japanese lives? disease and poison. It would also kill untold numbers of enemy non-combatants, women and children, but you know what? Ah, oh well. They're not Japanese, so fuck them. Uh, at this time, the Japanese military had a policy of sending uh, officers overseas to study foreign military facilities, and in the spring of 1928, uh, Ishii had left Japan for a two-year tour of international medis- uh, medical and military facilities, uh, including uh, in Germany. The tour was so important to him, he funded it partly out of his own pocket. He visited the United States, Canada, more than 20 European countries. So, you know, met with some early uh, Nazi medical, you know, scientists. Not sure if he actually met with Joseph Mengele or not. You know, there's there, there's not unlimited records on this guy. Uh, the purpose of, this, of his trip was to gain knowledge to further his goal of incorporating chemical and biological warfare into the Japanese military machine. He researched the history of gas weapons used in World War I, studied what various countries he was visiting were doing in the fields of bacteriological and gas warfare. When he returned to Japan in 1930, uh, the nationalistic movement that was already there when he left was burning hotter than ever. Japan and no one else mattered. That was the attitude. Japan first, everyone else last. Uh, an old slogan from six decades prior of a wealthy country, a strong army was being tossed around again. Other slogans such as fuck everyone else, uh, and, uh, if you're not Japanese, you can suck our collective dick and we'll make the whole world Japanese. Even if it means stomping your kids heads in, 
may have also been tossed around. I have no proof of those, but it feels right in my gut based on everything else I read. Uh, The upper ranks of the Japanese military establishment had been harboring dreams of conquering Asia for years, and from there, ideally conquering the rest of the world. And again, man, Imperial Japan, right up there with Nazi Germany in terms of 20th century dreams of just taking over the world by any means necessary. Ishii finally convinced the minister of the army into incorporating his biological and chemical weapons plans into Japan's dream of world domination. Ishii's first lab is set up, uh, as I stated earlier, 1932. It's called the Epidemic Prevention Research Laboratory. Sounds nice and harmless, right? Sounds helpful. Uh, it's set up in an army hospital, and Ishii's in charge, his first concrete step towards forming Unit 731. At the end of 1931, Ishii complained to the higher-ups uh, in the military that he'd only do so much with animal research. To create truly lethal, truly effective biological weapons, to perfect them, he needed human subjects. He convinced them that he needed to move his research facility to Manchuria, where he could pluck the local Chinese just off the streets. You know, in, in the way that Germans looked at non-Aryans as less than or, or even subhuman, uh, especially Jewish people, many Japanese in the 1930s, uh, I shouldn't say many, uh, many of the Japanese military at least, I want to speak for the entire citizenry, uh, 1930s, looked at essentially everyone who wasn't Japanese as less than and subhuman. Uh, he wasn't sent to Manchuria right away, but he did expand his facilities in Tokyo. Uh, Japan is an interesting culture uh, that way, by the way. Uh, I, read, I read a lot of stuff about kind of recent stuff in Japan. And it's like we talk about our struggles with racism here. Japan has historically struggled a lot with racism. <laughs> like, like very nationalistic, very much like, you know, you're, you're Japanese or you're fucking dirt. Okay, so then in 1932, uh, Japanese troops moved into the Manchurian Railroad hub city of Harbin, uh, Harbin, excuse me, a multicultural, multiracial center of commerce, art, and music. Back in 1898, the city was just a collection of villages, about 30,000 people total, but then was developed by the Russians in the first years of the 20th century before the Russo-Japanese War broke out into a fascinating and thriving city. Uh, as, as of the most recent census numbers taken back in 2010, the city had a population of over 10 million. So probably quite a bit more than that now if it's growing that fast. So much boning gone on over there. You don't go from 30,000 to over 10 million in roughly a century without a lot of boning. Uh, Russians, Mongols, and Chinese, various immigrants from, from the, throughout Asia live there. A lot of poor people live there as well. And with the recent outbreak of war, a lot of, a lot of displaced people, widows, orphans. You know, the kind of people that a fucking monster could pluck from the street and have very few people look for them. Uh, Dr. Ishii arrived a few months after the army and began overseeing construction of a large urban facility. He decided to build a kid's playground, dog park, roller rink, bounty house, arcade, and assisted living center for the disabled ger- ger- geriatrics of the area. Because he, he decided to be a nice guy all of a sudden. And the episode's over. No, of course he didn't do that. He decided to build a murder factory, man. He decided to build something that H.H. H. Holmes would have been jealous as shit over. He started out with just a few hundred men, and initially, so as not to sound off any alarms from the local population, you know, they kind of kicked things off under the pretenses of being a vaccine research center. You know, just don't mind us. We're just doing a little vaccine research. That's all, guys. We just happen to be really bad at it. So bad. Uh, so far, despite our best efforts, we're 100% unsuccessful at keeping our patients alive. Uh, Ishii also kicked off the beginnings of more research about 100 kilometers to the south in a poor neighborhood of about 300 homes. And Japanese troops told everyone living there that they had three days to clear the hell out. It's fun. Uh, Once they were gone, Ishii set up a restricted military zone, began construction of some brick buildings. Chinese laborers are recruited, paid wages that barely kept them alive. Several hundred rooms are built in less than a year. Everything else is veiled in secrecy. 
There were two sections to the new complex, one containing offices, living quarters, dining areas, warehouses, a parking lot. The other secret area contained prisons, uh, laboratories. I always want to say laboratories uh, and a crematoria. The workers who built this portion of the facility were murdered when the job was completed. Uh, that, by the way, if you're if you're getting into construction and you don't know a lot about how it works, that's the worst kind of construction job you can get uh, if you don't know. Like if you're a general contractor and you're getting going, you're putting some bids out, you're trying to get some work, you're negotiating how much you get paid for a job. Uh, if the facility owner says something along the lines of, hey, uh, instead of that much, how about when you're done, I murder you and, and I murder your entire crew? You need to keep negotiating. I know you don't want to lose the work, but you need to keep negotiating. Uh, this new facility became known as the Zongma Fortress, a walled-in fortress city. A three-meter high wall, about, about 10 feet high, was topped and barbed with a barbed wire, high-voltage electric wire uh, fence, uh, or electric wire, excuse me, up on top of the barbed wire. They just fucking big fence, uh, big wall, excuse me. Uh, barbed wire, electric wire. So they're, they're, they're not messing around. Guards are patrolling the perimeter 24 hours a day. Twin iron doors swing open to an actual fucking drawbridge. They had a drawbridge. Uh, the road leading to the facility was declared off limits to citizens and trains. Uh, or excuse me, citizens and trains. Like, like trains would just fucking drive up the, uh, road. No, it was declared off limits to citizens. And trains passing uh, about, a, about a kilometer away on some local train tracks were required to have their shades drawn. Uh, rumors quickly began to swirl about those who got a little too curious about this new secret fortress, uh, such as one about a young boy who walked too close one night for a look. His body would let, was allegedly found the next day. He'd been shot to death. More rumors circulated. Cries of anguish were heard. And in 1936, uh, it was well known among the Chinese in the area that this was not an ordinary prison, but it was some kind of some kind of murder shop. Uh, there was another rumor that uh, Andre Chikatilo, the butcher of Rostov, uh, was caught jerking off just outside the wall. Uh, <laughs> Why you keep making jerk-off jokes about Chikatilo? Shadow Chikatilo may have to haunt you now. I, I, see, I see no problem. I see no problem with the jerking of soft cock. Why, why is it joke? Why jokes keep being made? It's not even jerking off. It's more massage what I did. What I did, more massage than jerk. It's not even sexual. It, it's, more like, it's more like stress ball. Some people squeeze stress ball uh, with nervous. I, I squeeze weak, flaccid shame penis. What's what's the big deal with this? I promise I won't throw Chikatilo into every episode forever, but he still makes me laugh so much. Just his strange, flaccid penis rubbing. Okay, if you're a first-time listener, also, Chikatilo has nothing to do with this narrative. Uh, he was for sure not there. He's a character from a—he's not a character. He's a fucking monster. <laughs> we talked about it in a previous episode. Anyway, a local villager would report years later that locals were only used to, uh, to build the outer areas of the facility, the secret area— uh, was built from workers brought in by train from some other place, and then those workers, you know, as I stated a few moments ago, were, were, were killed. They were never seen again when construction was completed. And then the experiments began. One early experiment was determining how long a human being could live on just water. Food was withheld from prisoners, and some were given ordinary water. Others received distilled water to see which group lived longer. We know about this experiment from an early escapee from the fortress. Yeah, a few people actually uh, did get out. In 1936, roughly 40 people made it out one night after being recently transferred to the fortress in Zongma from Dr. Ishii, Dr. Ishii's other facility back in Harbin. Uh, it was August 15th. Some kind of festival was going on for the, for the Japanese. A prisoner named Lee knew the guards would be drinking and enjoying themselves. And when he handed a guard his utensils that evening after eating dinner, uh, he was able to, to, to grab this prison guy through the, through the bars, smash him in the head somehow, take his keys, let out a bunch of other prisoners. A storm had also taken out the electrical fence that night. 
So they're lucky that way. And uh, they kind of formed a human ladder to make it over this wall of the barbed wire and everything. And they escaped where, unfortunately, most of them were then shot by prison guards, including Lee himself. However, at least a few men made it to a local village and survived to tell their story years later. Uh, They also spread word of early kind of horrors going on within the facility. Blood constantly being drawn from prisoners, like way too much. Uh, Prisoners starved, injected with God knows what. Well, uh, due to word getting out, the fortress experiments were shut down. Uh, Couldn't risk the international community finding out what they were up to. Not quite yet. Still not quite ready for taking on the Allied forces in World War II. So construction began at a new facility located in the Ping Fang area of Harbin in 1936. Hundreds of families, again, forced to leave their homes. Uh, Buildings surrounding the facility could, uh, could be no more than one story high to keep out prying eyes. Airspace over the facility was limited to the Japanese military. Anyone coming to Ping Fang uh, needed a special travel pass. Going with the fortress theme again, a moat was created to surround the compound. Man, Dr. Ishii really went for that evil supervillain role with gusto. I wonder if he had an assistant with a hunchback, you know, helping him in his evil castle. Just, yes, Dr. Ishii. Uh, right away, Dr. Ishii, of, of course. Uh, I will grab the scalpel, master. W- would you like the small circular saw, master? Perhaps the blowtorch? Yes, of course. Anything, Mr. Ishii. Uh, the Ping Fang facility would be a compound of more than 70 separate buildings built on a six-square-kilometer track of land. Japanese construction company, the Suzuki Group, worked around the clock on the project. Uh, the bulk of construction on the new Unit 731 compound in Ping Fang is completed in 1939, uh, and mass experimentation really begins. It may have already been going on before that. Again, some of these things with the time, it's kind of hard to say since they destroyed so many records at the end of the war. Uh, men, women, even children were brought in for experiments. We do know that from a testimony of, of people who were involved that, that weren't, you know, killed or did come out of hiding, whatever. In an odd twist to the traditional way, humans have historically been tortured and killed. Uh, the prisoners at Unit 731, this facility, were actually kept in a clean and comfortable detention center. Uh, the cells had toilets, were clean. Uh, The buildings had central heating, cooling systems. They were well-fed, given good food, uh, allowed to exercise, that kind of stuff. Uh, Many were eating better than they did uh, before imprisonment. All of this was done to ensure that the results of Ishii's monstrous experiments weren't contaminated by famine or squalor affecting the prisoners, who are now referred to as marutas, Japanese for logs. Uh, This term comes from local villagers being told that the Japanese were building a lumber mill when they were constructing the facility. So, yeah, they wanted to, like, keep them as, 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 you know, living as normally as possible so that they could then have the best results when they mutilated and killed them. Jesus Christ. So clinical, this kind of evil. Uh, the Pink Fang compound was equipped with uh, three separate incinerators for disposing of bodies and other materials. It was a laboratory version of a con- uh, concentration camp. And if, and if this alone isn't disturbing enough to hear, a former worker there would later say that, quote, the bodies always burned up fast because all the organs were gone. The bodies were empty. Fuck. Another former worker described how they were able to take away uh, all the humanity from the prisoners there. He said they weren't people. Uh, They were just Maruta, just numbered logs. They were Maruta 74, Maruta 89. What's even more troubling is that it wasn't just Japanese military personnel working here. Uh, Ishii began to recruit civilian researchers from his alma mater mater in Kyoto. Uh, Everyday doctors, everyday medical researchers had the opportunity to have no ethical limitations placed on their research. And what kind of research exactly was going on at Unit 731? Well, I guess, I guess at that particular facility, they focused, uh, and they weren't limited to these four main areas, but they focused on four main areas. Uh, the first area of research focused on cholera. Uh, cholera experiments, 
uh, weren't just limited to facility prisoners. Japanese soldiers would be inoculated against cholera, for example, and then these soldiers would, would head to local villages around the facility and intentionally spread it to the general population by various means, uh, such as releasing cholera-infected dogs or rats into villages. And apparently the results were what Ishii hoped for, mass death from the disease in little communities around Unit 731. Uh, they also focused on EHF, epidemic uh, hemorrhagic, hemorrhagic fever. Uh, another area of research, uh, which uh, when Japanese troops moved into Manchuria, they started becoming infected with a previously unknown pathogen carried by ticks, uh, gave the infected a high fever, followed by internal bleeding, carried a 15 to 20% mortality rate. Ishii and his staff figured out how to treat the disease to curb losses amongst Japanese troops, and then he began experimenting on prisoners to turn it into a weapon. Uh, research teams... You know, went into uh, areas infested with the disease and collected rats. Ticks, which were found on the bodies of the rats, were removed. Approximately 200 of these ticks were ground and mixed into a saline solution. This mixture would then be injected, according to one report, into the bodies of subjects, which were then observed for symptoms of the disease. If the disease manifested, uh, then the blood of the subject would be drawn and injected into another subject. And if the second subject manifested symptoms, they just repeated it again. Uh, and then when these, subject, when these uh, symptoms appeared, the subject would be... Uh, dissected or vivisected its organs uh, their organs would be removed parts of these ground into a fine uh kind of solution again with saline and that would be injected into more subjects and it just kept going on and going on and uh the contents uh uh appeared of this study in a, in a medical journal and they used the, they used monkey for human being so they so they wouldn't be you know uh considered monsters so that was one actually study from the unit 71 that made it to some sort of publication but they just they concealed what they were actually doing by saying that they were doing this to monkeys. And I also want to say that, uh, calm down, animal lovers. Uh, I realize doing this to monkeys doesn't make it okay. It's also pretty fucked up. But, come on, not as bad as humans. I love animals. I do not uh, place animals, uh, you know, alongside humans as, as having equal value. Sorry. Sorry, not sorry on that. Uh, <laughs> uh, Unit 731 also experimented with plague. Uh, which had better military applications and cholera for killing military populations. Oh, by the way, I just I can feel animal people tightening up already. Uh, I again, though, I do want to be clear. I don't think animals should be experimented on either in these situations. Except, for, I don't know. You know what? If I'm gonna be totally honest, I don't fucking care about rats. So if you're a rat lover, ah, sorry, I don't fucking care. Uh, we have to experiment on some kind of biological animals to, you know, or excuse me, some kind of mammals to make medical advancements to save humans. And I'm I'm okay getting rid of rats. I'm not like, yeah, man, I don't fucking get off on it. But, you know, if it has to be done, all right, rats, there we go. Maybe it's, maybe it's partly because my daughter had a guinea pig, and that thing was a fucking asshole. Uh, it bit everybody, tried to put their hand in the cage. It was just a piece of shit. So there you go. So guinea pigs at least, all right? Guinea pigs at least, fucking do what you wish. Anyway, uh, plague. They, they experimented with the plague, and uh, which, which they preferred over cholera, because cholera could wreak havoc on civilian populations but not as ideal for attacking enemy troops because it wasn't as fatal and it took longer to kill you. Cholera has an incubation period of about 20 days. Plague can kill you in three. And Bojangles can kill you in negative one second. Yeah, you didn't know that, did you? Bojangles is so lethal and so quick, he can actually make you die just before he attacks you. Uh, anyway, the type of plague they experimented with was bubonic plague, you know, same one that killed those people in Europe in the, in the Middle, Middle Ages. Uh, patients develop sudden onset of fever, headache, chills, weakness, one or more swollen, tender, and painful uh, lymph nodes, and then oftentimes, you know, die a painful, painful death. Uh, frostbite tests were also done. Frostbite was another one of the main areas they focused on in Unit 731. Uh, these were directed by Dr. Uh, Yoshimura Hisato, uh, a.k.a. the fucking demon of death. Uh, 
uh, physiologist from the same school, Kyoto Imperial University, Azishi, uh, Moscow uh, remained on Tokyo's list of potential adversaries. And now Japan's incursion into China was once again putting, uh, putting her eye to, eyeball to eyeball kind of with Moscow. And if another clash came, you know, it's going to be in cold weather. Uh, in fact, cold weather combat had already established itself as a problem at the time of the Manchurian incident that began Japan's uh, occupation of parts and of parts of China in 1931. Army medics were treating large numbers of Japanese soldiers who were suffering from frostbite. Usually, fingers and toes would be affected, and you know, treatment uh, a lot of times involved amputating, you know, uh, the limbs that were too frostbitten to recover. This experience made it clear, and you know, made it clear that you know, uh, if they're going to get better at cold weather fighting, they needed to understand frostbite uh, a lot more and come up with some prevention and treatment. So Yoshimura was called on uh, to conduct some cold weather tests on human subjects under Ishii's guidance. And one of the standard methods that he employed in his research was deliberate induction of frostbite. This is this is one of the most this is some of the most brutal stuff. People were taken from prison into below freezing temperatures. They were tied up with their arms bared and soaked with water. Water was poured over their arms regularly. Sometimes uh, the ice that formed in them would be chipped away and then water poured over it again. Uh, the researcher would strike the limbs regularly with a club when an arm made a sound like a wooden board's being hit. This indicated that the limb was frozen through. And from there, different methods of treatment were tested. These people, they're, they're not given like anesthetic or anything. They're just dragged out into the open air and they're just having hypothermia or excuse me, frostbite forced upon their limbs. Their limbs frozen through and beaten with clubs. I can't even imagine the pain. Uh, legs and feet were also, you know, given similar treatment. Now, temperatures in Manchuria can reach as low as uh, minus 20 to 30 degrees Celsius. Some of the tests were conducted outdoors, you know, when it was that cold. Uh, at other times, electric fans were used to speed up the freezing. At Pingfang, uh, Yoshimura had his own large refrigerator lab uh, that allowed him to freeze subjects all year round and reach even lower temperatures than outside in the open. Temperatures that reach as low as minus 70 degrees Celsius. Some experiments resulted in the frozen flesh and muscle actually falling off of the bones. This is from living people. Others left the bones so brittle they were shattered. Their limbs were shattered like it was a fucking popsicle by blows from the clubs. Fuck. This is done to human beings. Not even criminals. Some of the subjects were prisoners of war. Some were just unlucky villagers. You know, you're farming a little plot of land in your village one day. You're getting your meat, your frozen meat knocked off your frozen arm bone in a death camp the next day while some e evil motherfucker hold, holds a clipboard and takes some notes. It's mind-blowing what our species is capable of doing to one another. Uh, the eventual result of the frostbite experiments were, were always the same. Gangrene and the rotting away of extremities. Several former Unit 731 members have commented on seeing victims of the experiments that had no hands, no feet. But still alive. Still alive. So they could study their slow and painful demise in, in literal excruciating detail. Uh, frostbite experiments were, were carried out on children and even infants. One experiment was with a three-month-old baby. A temperature-sensing needle was injected into the baby's hand, and the infant was immersed in ice water. Then temperature changes were carefully recorded, and then the baby was, you know, killed. Uh, fucking baby. One prisoner and victim of the frostbite experiments was pregnant when her baby was born. Uh, it was used in the frostbite experiment as well. H how can you be that callous towards human suffering? I mean, that's just, uh, uh, holy shit. It was around 1941 that the Ping Fang facility became known as Unit 731, kind of officially in documents and conversation. Various other torture units were popping up, and I guess they just needed uh, a classification system to kind of keep track of what was going on in each, each place. Uh, and again, yeah, there were other facilities, such as one in Anda. Uh, Anda was an open-air testing ground 120 kilometers from Ping Fang, about three hours by road. 
It was used for outdoor tests of plague, cholera, other pathogens, and experimental biological warfare bombs, other methods of exposing human beings to pathogenic substances in open-air situations. Tests generally used from uh, 10 to 40 people at a time, and then the subjects would be tied to crosses in circles uh, of various sizes. Tests involved an element of trial and error, and comparing results obtained from differently sized circles enabled researchers to determine ranges of effectiveness at various distances from the points where projectiles struck or infected guests were released. Good God. Uh, man, I listened to this in an in a, in audio book as well. And, and what, what it said is, just to make sure this is clear, yeah, these people were like, you know, tied up to a cross or whatever or, or just tied down to the ground. And if you just imagine like rings around the impact center where a bomb would be detonated, you know, there's one ring maybe at like 10 meters away, another at 20, another at 30, another at 50. And then they just place people at these distances so that when the bomb detonated, they could just, you know, find out exactly how each person was affected physically, you know, compared to how close they were to the bomb. Man, how much does it suck or if you get placed in that first ring? Um, do you think it makes sense to have me sit on the actual bomb? I feel like we all know it's going to happen in this situation. Can I please move to the maybe the 10-meter 10, the 10 ring, maybe the 100, maybe several thousand miles away? Uh, when biological warfare bombs were tested, each Maruda was protected with headgear and a metal plate hung from the neck to cover that part of the body. They, they didn't want the, the, the bomb itself to kill them. They didn't want the impact to kill them. They wanted the, the disease that was attached to the uh, explosive device. They wanted that, you know, maybe some uh, plague-infected fleas or whatever. They wanted, wanted that to get them, wanted that to kill them. Man, these assholes really played God, man. Decided not only when uh, their subjects would die, but how they would die. Uh, under veterinarian uh, Wakamatsu uh, Yujiro, Unit 100 in uh, Shenjing, uh, present-day uh, uh, Changjun, uh, concentrated his research on sabotage. One experiment entailed mixing poisons with food to study their effects on subjects and to gain knowledge of appropriate dosages for various toxins. Man, that'd be a shitty place to, to have mealtime. Just fucking every, every dinner, you, just, you don't know if they put poison in your food. Uh, additionally, extensive areas of land were cultivated for research into chemicals for crop destruction, so... That's your other choice. Do you want to be poisoned or do you want to eat poison crops? That's that's your unit 100 options. Uh, there were also other testing facilities in places like Beijing, uh, Guangzhou, Singapore, and Beijing. Former researchers would report uh, subjects being intentionally infected with plague, cholera, typhus, more in Singapore, also known as Unit 9420. Fleas containing plague were bred in mass. The process of how they did this is pretty crazy. Uh, here's a report I uh, came across in the book Unit 731, Testimony by Hal Gold. Somebody says, Seven Chinese, Indian, and Malay boys working in the lab were all assigned the task of picking fleas from rats and putting them into containers. The article quotes Ottoman Walk as saying, It was an unforgettable experience. It was the first time that I was doing something which made me feel like a medical student. Some 40 rat catchers, apparently Japanese soldiers, would comb Singapore for the rodents and bring their haul into the lab. The rats would then be put to sleep with chloroform, and the boys would work at pulling the fleas from their bodies with pinchers. Then the fleas were placed into containers with water, which prevented them from jumping around, and from there the Japanese staff took over. According to uh, Othman, I think I said Ottoman earlier, it's Othman walk. According to Othman, test tubes were prepared with one flea in each. The rats were injected with plague pathogens, their bellies were shaved, and the test tubes were inverted over the shaved area, allowing the fleas to feed on the rats and become plague carriers. All this work was done by the Japanese in the same room where I worked, Othman recounted. The infected fleas were then transferred to kerosene cans, which contained sand, dried horse blood, and an unidentified chemical. They were left to breed for about two weeks. Finally, the adult fleas had their offspring, all infected with plague, 
and then they were transferred to flasks and shipped out. Concerning their destination, Mr. Offman said a driver who drove the trucks which transported the fleas uh, to the railway station said that these bottles of fleas were sent off to Thailand. Uh, this information supports assertions that a Unit 731 branch operated in neutral Thailand as well. Man, so apparently these plague fleas were then used uh, years later on a biological attack in uh, Chong Chongqing. Uh, and then on the island of Okin, uh, Okunoshima, just outside Hiroshima, a factory started producing poison gas in 1929. Uh, 1942, Ishii oversees more extensive uh, field tests of germ warfare on Chinese soldiers and civilians. Tens of thousands die of bubonic plague, cholera, anthrax, other diseases, putting those fleas to work. Uh, U.S. soldiers captured in the Philippines are sent to Manchuria, and some of them may have well, very, uh, very well died in Ishii's experiments. So I think when they talk about the 3,000 number that I mentioned at the, at the top, that's kind of like people who died in the facility. But they're also killing people in various villages and uh, small cities around, the, around <laughs> Southeast Asia as well. So who knows exactly how many people died at the hands of Ishii, you know, his experiments. 1945, Japanese troops blow up the headquarters of Unit 731. In the final days of the Pacific War, as, as their defeat appears imminent, Ishii orders the 150 remaining logs still alive in the facility to be killed to cover up their experimentation. 1946, the U.S. engages in a Unit 731 cover-up and secret deal with Ishii and Unit 731 leaders. Germ warfare data based on human experimentation in exchange for immunity from war crimes prosecution begins in earnest. The deal is concluded uh, two, years, uh, two years later. How messed up is that? I, I get that the info they had was probably very valuable to disease prevention, but couldn't you double-cross them in that situation? Like, get the info. Then send in, I don't know, CIA assassins or somebody to put these monsters into ground. So disgusting that the, the, so many of the people who ruthlessly tortured thousands to death got to walk punishment-free after the war was over. It's shit like that that makes me not believe in karma, right? <laughs> Where's the karma here? I'd love to have that explained to me because I, I don't see it. Uh, in 1959, uh, Ishii dies at the fangs of Bojangles. Bojangles ties him up. Not an easy feat for a three-legged dog. And then plucks Ishii's pubic hair out. All of it. One hair at a time. Also not easy when you're down a paw and you don't have a thumb. And then he cuts Ishii's dick off with a cheese grater. That's right. He grates off his dick slowly. Dumping some salt in the wound every few minutes. A little trick you picked up from the Iceman, Kuklinski. Die, Ishii, die, you piece of shit. Hail Nimrod. No, sadly, that does not happen. Sadly, it doesn't. Ishii does at least die of throat cancer, so hopefully that hurt. Uh, but he got to live as a free man until the age of 67. There were rumors that after the war, he opened up a pediatric clinic. Uh, if that's true, guessing he scared the shit out of, a, out of more than a few of his patients. And guessing he didn't go heavy with the painkillers. Ah, oh, he's fine. He didn't even ask for aspirin. He doesn't, he doesn't need it. He doesn't need it. It should only take an hour or so to reset his broken leg 10 to 15 times. And I'll put it into a cast. I'll hold together with nails. Uh, there were also rumors he converted to Catholicism before his death. Huh. It's convenient. wonder how many Hail Marys you, you need to do to atone for overseeing the horrific death of thousands of innocent people in order to perfect weaponry that will kill millions more. 1981, John Powell, a former publisher of a Shanghai magazine who was unsuccessfully tried for sedition in the early 1950s for accusing the United States of using germ warfare in Korea. Uh, which, you know, I, I haven't been able to research that. That's probably a whole separate episode about U.S. Uh, biological warfare. Uh, ex he, this person exposes the Unit 731 immunity deal in the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists. In 1985, Dr. Murray Sanders, a former lieutenant colonel who was a U.S. advisor on biological warfare, claims that he persuaded MacArthur to approve the immunity deal for Japanese scientists like Ishii. Uh, 
in the fall of 1945, so you know that definitely happened. 1986, a congressional subcommittee holds a one-day hearing in Washington called by Representative Pat Williams of Montana aimed at determining whether U.S. prisoners of war in Manchuria were victims of germ warfare experimentation. Uh, the hearing is inconclusive due to all of the evidence that was destroyed by the Japanese at the end of the war. Uh, and that is it for this evil timeline. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. Okay, so that's it for the timeline. Now, now let's look a little more in depth at what these bastards did. I, I was tempted to insert a, a, a super scary stuff segment here, but, but I think this shit is more sad. It's more sad than scary. Uh, these are various tales told by, by former doctors, nurses, guards, etc., who worked at Unit 731 at one time or another. So firsthand tales. And uh, the first story is about a man known only as the farmer, uh, and this is told by a Unit 731 uh, former doctor there. The man looked like a farmer covered with grime. He was wasting away, and his cheekbones protruded. His eyes glared out from the dirt and the tattered cotton clothes he was wrapped in. The team leader was fully pleased with yesterday's results. We never had such a typical change in blood, uh, picture, and rate of infection, and I was eagerly looking forward to see what changes would be present in today's blood sample. With high hopes, I came to the number seven cell block with the armed guards at my side. The Maruda I was working on was on the verge of death. It would be disastrous if he died. Then I would not be able to get a blood sample, and we would not obtain the important results of the test we had been working on. I called his number. No answer came. I motioned through the window at the other four prisoners to bring him over. They sat there without moving. I screamed abusively at them to hurry up and bring him over to the window. One of the guards pulled out a gun, aimed it at them, and screamed in Chinese. Resigned, they gently lifted up the other man and brought him over to the window. More important to me than the man's death was the blood flowing in the human guinea pig's body at the moment just before his death. His hand was purplish and turning cold. He put his arm through the opening. I was elated. Filled with a sense of victory and holding down my inexpressible excitement, thinking forward to how the team leader would be waiting for these results, I reached for the hypodermic. I inserted the needle into the vein. It made a dull sound. I pulled the red black blood into the hypodermic. Three cubic centimeters. Five cubic centimeters. His face became paler. Before he'd been moaning, now he could not even moan. His throat was making a tiny rasping sound like an insect. With resentment and anger in his eyes, he stared at me without even blinking. But that did not matter. I obtained a blood sample in the ten... I, I obtained a blood sample of ten cubic centimeters. For people in uh, laboratory work, this is ecstasy, and one's calling to his profession. Showing compassion for a person's death pains... Excuse me, showing compassion for a person's death pains was of no value to me. At the lab, I processed the blood sample quickly and then went back to look into the cell. His face occasionally twitched. His breath became shallower, and he went into his death throes. The other four men in the cell, who had the same fate waiting for them, could not contain their anger. They took water and poured it into the mouth of the dead man. This way, an irreplaceable life is trifled with to take the place of a guinea pig, and the result is one sheet of graph paper. Four or five soldiers with drawn guns opened the door to the cell. It made a heavy sound. They dragged the dead man out into the corridor and loaded him onto a handcart. The other four men, knowing what their fate would be tomorrow, could not hold down the anger in their eyes as they watched their dead companion leave. The handcart disappeared in the direction of the dissection room, with a tall chimney looming above. Hell. Those poor bastards spent their final moments in a living hell. 
So terrible. I, I have a hard time even imagining how horrible their final days must have been. And this doctor recounting this story years later, it, it just does, does seem by his language like there's still such a lack of compassion. Just so, again, just so clinically evil. Uh, uh, STDs, uh, such as syphilis, were studied by Unit 731 researchers. Uh, STDs were becoming a real problem for the Japanese military due to their constant raping of Russian and Chinese women. I wish I was making that up. Uh, the Marco Polo Bridge incident and the rape of Nanjing uh, were two wartime incidents that took place in 1937, and there were 20,000 recorded incidents of rape against Russian women recorded uh, during the five-month period between those events alone. 20,000 recorded incidents in five months. Fuck those guys like to rape. So many Japanese soldiers were getting STDs from all of the raping and frequent use of comfort women, i.e. prostitutes slash sex slaves, that the military higher-ups called upon Unit 731 to figure out how to treat STDs more effectively and clean up these pieces of shit's dicks. Uh, here is one former researcher's account of his STD research. At first, we infected women with syphilis by injection, but this method did not produce real research results. Syphilis is normally transmitted through direct contact. Infection of venereal disease by injection was abandoned, and the researchers started forcing the prisoners into sexual acts with each other. Four or five unit members, dressed in white laboratory clothing, completely covering their body with only eyes and mouth visible, handled the tests. A male and female, one infected with syphilis, will be brought together in a cell and forced into sex with each other. It was made clear that anyone resisting would be shot. Once the healthy partner was infected, the progress of the disease would be observed closely to determine, for example how far it advanced the first week, the second week, so forth. Instead of merely looking at external signs, such as the condition of the sexual organs, researchers were able to employ live dissection, so vivisection, to investigate how different internal organs are affected at different stages of the disease. Uh, by learning how the disease develops, we try to find a way to protect Japanese soldiers from sexually transmitted diseases. Wow. Man, in order to treat the soldiers who were getting syphilis from all of their raping, they raped more people and then, you know, cut them open while they're still alive to study these diseases. That it, It's just cartoonishly evil. It's like, it's like my brain won't actually allow the true horror of everything I'm talking about to sink in. Raping and killing people to help treat other people getting sick from all of their raping and killing. I feel like, like, like if Satan is real... Uh, even he would bump on this a bit, you know, even he'd be like, whoa, guys, guys, you, you know, I love some evil, but fuck, it's too, it's too much. It's too much. You, you just made one of my demons throw up, uh, hearing about that. I'm all for torture. I'm all for killing, but raping to help rapists. Fuck. Come on. Uh, here's another, uh, former surgeon's recollection of his unit 731 research. I went over and pushed the other one to the operating table. I had no feeling of apology or of doing anything bad. The farmer was resigned to his fate, and he lowered his head and walked forward. I didn't want to get my clothes dirty from him. I wanted to look sharp. He went as far as the operating table, but didn't want to lie down. A nurse using broken Chinese told him, We're using ether. It won't hurt, so lie down. She gave me a wry smile when she said that. She had been working there for a long time, and when I happened to meet her again much later and asked her about it, she didn't remember. She was handling so many vivisections, it was routine. People who repeat evil acts do not remember them. There is no sense of doing wrong. War means this also. War is not just shooting. In order for Japan to win, all the Chinese were made prisoners. Women's bellies were cut open. Homes were burned. If you couldn't do this, then you weren't a loyal soldier of the emperor. The scene in that room was not a typical one of preparing for an operation, but a clamor. 
It was practice for army doctors for winning a war. If you made a disagreeable face when you returned home, you would be called a traitor. If it were just me alone, I could tolerate it. But the insulting, lo insulting looks would be cast on parents and siblings. If, even if one despises an act, one must bear it. From there, a person becomes accustomed to it. We all receive practice. It was normal to smile at this. The crimes committed during our aggressive wars are forgotten, gone from memory. At the time, they were right. If you are praised, you must go ahead and perform. Surgery began. The man was given ether and dissected. So really vivisected. He was, you know, he was cut open while still alive. His appendix was so small that it looked, it was like looking for a burrowing worm. I had to cut and search repeatedly. The blood flow was stopped. Nerves were cut. Bones were cut with a saw. And a tracheotomy was performed. Blood and air escaped from his body and blood came foaming up. Practice time was two hours. The man died and his body was thrown into a hole and buried. The burial area near the operating room was full, so we had to dig another hole farther away. We had received a request from a Japanese pharmaceutical manufacturer. I scraped samples from the outer covering of his brain, placed them into 10 500cc bottles with alcohol, and sent them to the company for rheumatism research. The other man, the soldier, was still panting. The hospital head used him for hypodermic practice and injected air into him. Then, to kill him, he injected the same liquid used for anesthesia. This was my first crime. After that, it was easy. Eventually, I dissected 14 Chinese. Once I instructed a hygiene specialist in anatomy. We had charts and models, but I thought that actual experience would be faster. I, cont I contacted the Kenpai Tai and received one person. I cut the belly and the chest. I explained the intestines, the kidneys, the liver, and the stomach. I was doing hideous things. I also saw vivisections. Once I saw about 40 doctors gathered. There was a man bound and squatting. The guard asked the doctors, are you ready? And the prisoner was laid out, and without anesthetic, two cuts were made down his belly. The victim made a few gasps, the dissection was a botch, and he died soon. I saw four people cut open that way. Man, this same former researcher goes on to talk about various other horrific deeds, and about how when the war was over, uh, he was surprised when he was charged with war crimes and sentenced to prison. Uh, he served like 12 years. He didn't think he had done anything wrong. And you can tell by kind of like his language and stuff that he still, you know, felt he hadn't done anything wrong. He just felt like it was war. And, you know, you, you just did what you needed to do to, to help win, no matter what that was. God, that's such a, that's, you could have a whole, you could have many episodes just about that premise alone. What is okay to do in war? Oh, uh, man, there was films of the season. The former Kyoto medical student remembered watching videos of some of the experiments in class during World War II. Says, when we first started studying at Kyoto, our instructor was an army doctor who told us the practice of medicine is not for healing the sick and injured. In uh, Japan, he said, was fighting the world, and medicine itself must become a weapon. The instructor told us that animal tests alone were not sufficient for medical studies and that human tests were also necessary. He said that such tests had been carried out and showed us 16-millimeter movies that had been taken in Manchuria. One movie showed an experiment in which air was injected into the arms of living subjects to produce air embolisms. The film showed the victims in progressive stages of the condition as they suffered to death. Another film the instructor showed us was a beheading with blood spurting from the body after the head was cut off. Man, students being shown that shit. That's one way to create a, to create a, just a fucking generation of monsters. Teach an entire culture that, that, you know, the only lives that have value are Japanese lives. And you can do whatever you want with anybody else. Dr. Ishii's former car driver told this story after the war. At the Onda Biological Warfare Bomb Testing Ground, we watched through binoculars from a distance of about four kilometers. There was very little sound when the bomb hit. Then the contents released, appearing smoky. 
There was no gunpowder explosion that would kill the fleas. Each Maruta had a head protector and a chest protector to prevent being killed by bomb fragments. If bomb shrapnel were to get them, then the effects of the bacteria could not be evaluated. Only the arms and legs were exposed. Afterward, the progress of the plague to the body was observed. Once, a Maruta got loose. And, one after the other, they untied each other and began running away. Just about all 40 of them scattered over the field, but there was no place to escape to by that remote airport. There was nothing else to do but get in the truck and run over them. Sometimes I'd get one under the front, sometimes I'd feel one crushed under the running board. In the end, all 40 were killed. Just running them down with a man with a truck in a field like it's, like it's a game. You know these assholes had guns, they could have shot them. Yeah, but they want to have some fun, have a little sociopathic fun. Ah, man, wish I could just go back in time and round up these researchers and do that to them. Just Mad Max the shit out of them. Just run them down. Uh, The worst thing I came across researching this episode was pressure tests. I listened to these uh, described in the audiobook for Unit 731, The Forgotten Asian Holocaust by Derek Poix. There would be a person in an airtight chamber, and then they would slowly increase the pressure in the chamber until the person's eyes literally popped out of their head, until blood began coming out of their fucking pores. And then they perform an immediate vivisection, sometimes when they were still alive. I literally can't think of a worse way to kill somebody. It's unreal. It's beyond disgusting. And, and by the way, vivisection, a term that keeps coming up in this episode, uh, not sure I'd ever heard that word prior to this week. It, it means essentially just, yeah, like uh, cutting somebody open while they're still alive. Like where a dissection is the cutting into a dead animal, uh, vivisection is, is the live version. Human experimentation, Unit 731, uh, gave researchers their first chance to actually examine the organs of a living person at will to see the progress uh, of a disease at, you know, at very specific moments. And so vivisection was a you know, new experience for the doctors of Japan. One former unit member explained that the results of the effects of infection cannot be obtained accurately once the person dies because putrefactive bacteria set in. Putrefactive bacteria are stronger than plague germs, for example. So, for obtaining accurate results, it is important whether the subject is still alive or not. The research methods in Manchuria allowed doctors to induce diseases and examine their effects on organs in the first stages. Researchers worked with interpreters to ask about emerging symptoms, took subjects out of cells at what they judged to be the optimum time for results, and then they just sliced them open, and then they just, you know, they died whenever they died. According to one former unit member, as soon as the symptoms were observed, the prisoner was taken from his cell and into the di- dissection room. He was stripped and placed on a table, screaming, trying to fight back. He was strapped down, still screaming. Uh, one of the doctors would stuff a towel into his mouth, and then with one quick slice of the scalpel, he was opened up. Even with the intestines and organs exposed, a person does not die immediately. It's the same physical situation as ordinary surgery under anesthesia, in which a person is operated on and then restored. Witnesses at vivisections report that the victim usually lets out a horrible scream when the cut is made, and then the voice stops soon after that. The researchers conduct their examination of the organs, remove the ones they want for study, discard what is left of the body. Somewhere in that process, the victim dies, through either blood loss or removal of vital organs. Man, remember earlier when I said I couldn't imagine a worse way to die? Uh, Now I can. Motherfucker, this stuff is dark. Man, you guys just couldn't have picked Tesla for the bonus episode, could you? Uh, so why did they do all this? In theory, uh, so they could create new and effective biological weapons. So did they? Did they make those weapons? Kind of. Uh, they did actually use some of the results of their research in battle. In 1938 and 1939, the Soviet and Japanese armies clashed in two full-scale encounters at the Manzawaguo uh, border and former Mongolian border. 
Uh, the latter battle, which came to be known as the Nomanhan Incident, resulted in an overwhelming defeat of the Japanese forces. But Ishii did, did get to test some of his research there uh, despite the loss. His unit was to poison the water supply of the enemy, and they, and they did that. They tried. Well, they tried. They tried to poison him. Uh, they dumped intestinal typhoid germs into a river to infect the water supply of Russian soldiers downstream. However, once typhoid germs are dumped into a river, they become ineffective almost immediately. So while this attack was completely unsuccessful, uh, it is the first known time the Japanese army used biological warfare. And, uh, yeah, I guess all those experiments for nothing. It's kind of crazy that uh, it didn't work at all. Well, then, uh, not that one, at least. They did get more effective later. In October 1940, a plague attack was conducted against the port city of Ningbo. Uh, this was a joint operation by Unit 731 and one of its affiliates, Nanjing-based Unit 1644. In this operation... Plague germs mixed with wheat, corn, cloth, scraps, and cotton were dropped from the air. A resident of the area uh, who was attacked, who was 14 years old at the time and working in uh, a tofu shop, would recount it. Uh, Later, he was infected but managed to recover, and it is said that he is the only living person today who can bear witness to that particular experiment uh, at Ningbo. His testimony was recorded in a video documentary printed in literature in Japan. Uh, Here's a little excerpt. He says, uh, one day, a Japanese plane flew over and kept circling. Then it dropped something that looked like smoke. It was wheat flour and corn and other things. The next day, people started getting sick. Three days later, the tofu shop's owner's two children were dead, and other people were getting sick and dying. Nobody could understand what had happened. My own family died, one after the other. There was misery all around. Everyone who died did so in pain and agony, going into convulsions. At first, the bodies turned red. Then after death, they turned black. Man, more than 100 or roughly 100 persons died uh, within a few days of that attack. Crazy. They wiped out a village with some kind of super plague they had developed. A Chinese specialist on disease prevention and plague tells how he kept that disease from spreading to other areas. He said, on the 29th, three days after the Japanese plane came, I entered the Ningbo area that had been attacked. The first thing I did was separate the people seriously affected, those lightly affected, and the healthy ones. Then I encircled the infected area of the attack zone with a wall about a meter deep, and a meter and a half high, so the rats could not escape. 600 people were moved south. When November came, we burned everything in the enclosed area, and in this way, we stopped the plague from spreading. According to my records, 97 people died. Shit. Uh, So they just obliterated a village with some plague. Uh, In December 1940, just innocent villagers. They were just like, yeah, let's just see what happens. Let's just make sure this works. Uh, In September 1942, another attack was carried out by two units, with Ishii himself commanding the operation. A survivor reports later... I was 15 years old at the time, and I remember everything clearly. The Japanese plane spread something that looked like smoke. A few days later, we found dead rats all over the village. And at the time, people came down with high fevers and aches in the lymph nodes. Every day, people died. Crying could be heard all through the village. My mother and father, in all, eight people in my family died. I was the only one in my family left. My mother had a high fever all day. She was crying for water and clawing at her throat. Then she let out a roar like a lion and died before my eyes. Altogether, 380 people in the village died. At times, as many as 20 people died in one day. As soon as the first people started dying, Japanese came into the village wearing protective clothing and masks. They went around the village for three days, giving infections to the people. They administered two shots, one to the arm and one to the chest. Some of the people who got those shots also died. The Japanese researchers took over a house on the top of a hill, about a kilometer away from the attack area to use as a vivisection laboratory. We were told that if we went to a house at the top of the hill, we would get treated. 
My friend told me that his wife went to the house for treatment and later was seen strapped to a table with her body split open. Her feet were still moving. There's no doubt that she was dissected alive. These successful air attacks showed the disease could be delivered by air, and so the army doctors redoubled their efforts to produce and accumulate rats and fleas. Still, imperfections remained in the system. The early attacks had been all carried out by slow, low-flying planes that were effective against peaceful, unarmed villages. Yeah, you fucking assholes. Uh, Battlefield conditions would be far more demanding. Ishii wanted to have the ability to deliver pathogens from higher altitudes, and he started developing a series of bombs that could deliver rodents and insects from great heights. That's so weird to me. Just dropping off rat bombs, dropping off flea bombs. Uh, the test ground at Anda started seeing drops from higher altitudes using different kind of prototypes of biological bombs. Uh, early attempts have proven that explosives were not practical, you know, since the detonation would kill, you know, the insects or the rats, which makes sense. Uh, glass bombs were experimented with. And then Ishii remembered uh, Japan's kind of ceramic heritage. He went into villages where traditional kilns had turned out ceramic wares and ordered bombs made to his exact kind of specifications. Uh, how strange, man. Ceramic bombs containing little fleas or whatever just dropped from planes way, way up in the air, you know, just dropping disease. And, 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 and that almost uh, happened in the U.S. His, his new ceramic bombs were almost dropped in the U.S. Uh, the plan uh, for, for this was called Operation PX, and it was going to be a, a submarine it was going to approach the American shore, a special submarine that had like it could have these little planes inside of it in a special little area that then could, you know, when they when they surfaced, it could like launch four little kind of seaplanes. And uh, and it would launch these little planes, you know, off the off the coast and, and they would drop their plague and cholera and other passion, you know, kind of bombs. And then the submarine crews would, all, would run ashore carrying more germs. The entire attack was a planned. It was planned as a suicide mission. And the project moved forward from a foundation of biological warfare intelligence provided by Ishii in Unit 731, was finalized on March 26, 1945. Then at the last moment, thank God, General Yoshihiro, chief of the general staff, stepped in and ordered the plan scrapped. He reasoned that if bacteriological warfare is conducted, it will grow from the dimension of war between Japan and America to an endless battle of humanity against bacteria. Japan will earn the derision of the world. Ah, thank God, somebody was thinking straight. So there's little doubt, uh, though, you know, if the war went on quite a bit longer, he, he probably could have found a new general that he could push this through on. And uh, something horrific would have happened to, you know, San Diego or San Francisco or someplace. OK, now, before we ride too, too long here on the how could Japan be so evil train, let's take a quick look at America's actions around this time. You know, about two weeks before the finalization of Operation PX, America brought a new weapon into the war, uh, napalm. They used it in an incendiary attack on a large, lower-class excuse me, neighborhood of Tokyo. Uh, even amongst uh, the almost continuous air raids of Japan, the Great Tokyo Air Raid stood out as being the most devastating prior to the, kind of the most devastating for Japan, uh, you know, in general, prior to the atomic bomb drops in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. An estimated 100,000 civilians burned to death, you know, by a combination of conventional incendiaries and America's new uh, contribution to modern weaponry, napalm. I did not know that until this week, man. We fucking napalmed 100,000 civilians. Think about how evil we make terrorists out to be. Think about how evil we, you know, how, like, like a bin Laden person, we, we make him out. We, we still hate him for what he did. You know, the 9-11 attacks, a couple thousand people. What if, you know, and, and, and we should, by the way, that was evil. But what if we had killed, you know, uh, or, or if somebody killed like 100,000 of our citizens with like napalm? Think, think about that, like the scale of that. It's just, oh my God, man, it's unfucking believable You know, all these people, they, and they didn't die while, you know, while we were in the midst of killing soldiers. It's not like they were just, you know, unavoidable collateral damage. We just, just burned up a neighborhood, just random people, non-combatants. 
World War II was just full of so much evil. Man, God, I hope our species never goes there again, at least not on a global scale. Uh, hopefully ever again. And then on August 15th, 1945, Japan announced its surrender. World War II is over for them officially on September, 20, or September 2nd when they signed their surrender. And then, uh, you know, almost all the evidence of Unit 731's atrocities disappear. At the end of the war, Japan, you know, they, they expected a Soviet thrust into Manchuria. And so the facilities of Unit 731 and its branches were blown up. Evidence was destroyed. The remaining logs are executed. Documents are gone. The fortress, you know, Zongma is destroyed. Center of Pingfang, all that stuff is destroyed. Few other facilities do remain standing to this day. Uh, the staunch building in Nanjing that served as home to Unit 1644, sometimes called the Tama Unit, is now used as a hospital, so that's cool. People can visit the rooms on the second floor where rats and fleas were once raised. They can visit the third floor where infected Maruta were, you know, vivisected. Oh, man. Uh, skeleton crews stay behind in China to carry out the destruction uh, of these facilities. While the ma major part of the staff and their families feeling that the Soviet's breath was, you know, right on their necks, so they cleared out in Manchuria. Ishii boarded a train for, for getting the hell out of there. Took films and records with him. Ended up returning to Japan by plane. And then a short time later, you know, he made a deal. Got got to live his life. And that's it, man. That's the story of Unit 731. And, and before we hit some closing thoughts on some top five takeaways, uh, let's remind ourselves that evil didn't just exist in the 1930s and 1940s. It still is alive today, uh, as evidenced by the subhuman comments of various idiots of the Internet. Idiots of the Internet. Under a video called Most Atrocious Unit 731 Experiments, YouTuber user uh, Azine Baman says, USA should have bombed their ass even more and burned them to the ground. No, dumb shit, they shouldn't have. The average Japanese civilian wasn't doing this. Uh, we shouldn't burn any civilization to the ground uh, ever because no entire civilization is evil. I, I hate shit like that. I hate hearing people say stuff, you know, recently like, you know, why don't we just nuke North Korea? Because it's fucking evil, you non-complex thought-having motherfucker. You know who hates North Korean, uh, the North Korean government more than any American could? Millions of North Korean citizens who have had their lives destroyed by that dumb shit, Kim Jong-un. You know, they're the ones getting fucked more than anyone. But there's always those people, just nuke them, nuke them. That's the same guy who never fought in high school but would stand outside of a fight and just yell, hit him, hit him, just hit him. Ah, dumb shit. Uh, user Samurai Ray posts, what a hoax, just like the Holocaust. Man, Holocaust deniers. They are right up there with flat earthers for the, just the world's most willfully ign ignorant people. Uh, and Ray, uh, once he's able to let his feeble mind go to a place of Holocaust denial, of course can add Unit 731 to that list. He can deny that as well. I, I've met a few deniers in the, <laughs> over the course of my life. Every single one of them carried uh, themselves in a way where they, they not only clearly thought they were intelligent— they thought they were more intelligent than the people who just believed these stories. You know, they were one of the few smart enough to see through the bullshit. Got dumb people who think they're just geniuses are the most just uh, annoying dumb people to be around. Arrogant ignorance. It's the most insufferable kind. Just keep believing in the Holocaust, buddy. Okay, man. Keep swallowing their lies. Bah, bah. Have fun being sheep, bro. Me, I think for myself, man, I look at someone who's just accepted centuries of compounded scientific knowledge or well-documented history or people with first-hand knowledge regarding the subject matter, people who studied in their fields for years, and I just think, you know, you ain't tricking me. <laughs> nah, uh -uh, you ain't getting one over on me. I can read. I can read stuff on clickbait sites and The Onion that I don't understand is satire, and I can subscribe to YouTube vlogs and TMZ and scan Reddit subgroups and check out Facebook memes, and I know the truth. 
No fake news for this genius. You got PhD in history? Well, I see that, and I raise it with the PhD that I have, and I ain't falling for your bullshit. So you can tell your fucking Jewish Illuminati overlords living in their secret control bunkers and enough with their white guilt lies. Uh, but, but buddy, uh, Unit 731 was committed by the Japanese, not by Aryans. Oh, oh yeah, oh shit, okay, well, so says you. So says you, man, so says you. Whatever, man, everything that comes out of your mouth is a lie. Yeah, fuck. Uh, user Rave Taco also does not possess a firm understanding of history, making that clear with the post. This makes the Nazis look like saints. N- no, dude, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. The Nazis also did horrific medical experiments on humans. Nothing makes the Nazis look like saints. The Nazis always look like Nazis. Nothing saintly about the torture and brutal extermination of over 10 million civilians in death camps when you count not only, you know, uh, the Jewish people who died, but gypsies, political dissidents, mentally ill, Jehovah's Witnesses, priests, homosexuals, various other Slavic and Polish people not deemed Aryan enough to be worthy of life. So you know what? Don't ever use a sentence again that includes the phrase, makes the Nazis look like saints. All that does is make you look like a moron. Uh, And then the best comment I've come across so far in all of my idiot of the internet searches that totally made my week. I'm not kidding. So happy when I saw this. So happy. Uh, YouTube user Colin DeJuren, uh, having no idea which video I might look at this week to pick comments from, posted, Dan Cummins, I'm not an idiot of the internet. <laughs> he posted that in this thread where I got the other comments from. Oh, my God, that was so cool. Colin, thank you so much. I hope I got your name right. D-Z-U-R-I-S-I-N. Uh, that, that was fantastic. Not sure if you left that comment on a bunch of videos just to see, you know, Increase the odds or that I would find it, or if you just knew, yep, there's some idiot gold in this thread. Uh, no, you are not an idiot, Colin. You are a fucking champion. Uh, thank you. Idiots of the internet. internet. All right, so so why did the Japanese army, uh, you know, research and develop bacteriological weapons? You know, why why did they commit all this evil? You know, I know that we know the general. Uh, reason was just to help win the war. But why specifically this? Uh, well, be- because it was uh, a way to kill a large number of people, theoretically, at a low cost. You know, is, is what they did more immoral than dropping atomic bombs on civilians or-, or napalming a neighborhood? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. You know, what's worse, torturing 3,000 innocent people to death or incinerating a few hundred thousand, you know, uh, with with the bombs? I I, I- <sighs> I don't think it is worse. I think it just seems worse because of the intimacy involved. You know, both examples are people killing other people in a way that leads them to believe that that what they're doing will help the cause they think is, you know, just, uh, which is, you know, winning the war for their side, even if it means the loss of, you know, innocent lives. You know, and, and that way, the Unit 731 killings are, are, are actually, I don't know, I guess somehow less abhorrent to me, maybe, than the Holocaust killings, because the Holocaust killings were, were done just more out of just racial hatred than in help than, than to help win the war. I mean, convincing those 10-plus million people to fight on behalf of Germany would have served the Nazis far better, you know, for their war effort than exterminating them did. Uh, however, reducing humans to not just wartime collateral damage, but viewing them as nothing more than lab rats, that is uh, especially troubling to me. It's so dehumanizing. You're not just killing them. You're taking away every last ounce of dignity and humanity from them. You know, you're giving them a front row seat to sustained and, and ultimate evil. Then you are killing them. So I guess in that way, the Unit 731 killings bother me more than the uh, atomic bombings. Maybe they bother me about the same as the Holocaust. Death. I don't know. It's all so super fucked up. I think the real takeaway from this is that war is horrible. Always. People die. Always. Always. 
And not all those people are bad. Not all those people signed up to fight. In a perfect world, the bad guys would be evil cartoons, and the world would be definitely better not having them around. And I just hope that as technology advances, we can, we can kill the regimes uh, of our enemies in war and not take out their underlying innocent populations. You know, like, again, using North Korea as an example, take out Kim Jong-un, take out his top military commanders, but somehow leave the rest of his army, you know, the lower ranks, poor bastards just trying not to end up in a state labor camp. Leave them alive. Give them a chance at a new life, you know, a chance to accept a new orthodoxy. In the Japanese example, would have been great to have the technology to snuff out Dr. Ishii, snuff out Hirohito. And thousands of other high-ranking officers. Get rid of a lot of those fucking rapey soldiers. Somehow leave the rest alive. Not have to bomb them. But for now, at least, all that's just a fantasy. So until it's not a fantasy, let's just uh, let's try not to go to war. Let's try and use diplomacy whenever possible. And then when we do go to war, let's let's you know, which I know is inevitable sometimes. Let's uh, let's never allow ourselves to sink as low as Doctor Ishii did. Always realize that if you're if you're trying to take the world over and remake it in your country's image. That if your country's image is a place where a monster like Dr. Ishii is seen as a patriot, then your image doesn't deserve to be remade into fucking anything. And finally, I I just think it's good to hear these stories sometimes because, like Winston Churchill, uh, a.k.a. uh, George Santayana said, those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it. So let's not repeat it. But let's do repeat a little more of today's episode with some top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, at least 3,000 men, women, and children were infected with lethal diseases and or raped and or pressurized, gassed, frozen, and or tortured in other means and often dissected while still alive at the hands of doctors, the people supposed to protect us from pain and disease in the late 1930s and early 1940s at the hands of the Japanese researchers at Unit 731. Number two, the Unit 731 staff dehumanized their victims, referring to them as logs instead of people. Dehumanize any group enough, whether it be along racial, sexual, religious, or other lines, and you can become as evil as those doctors. It's okay only to wish death upon assholes, I think. I hope. Or, if not, I I might be a monster. Number three, Dr. Ishii got away with it. Never even went to trial for his crimes. If we really want to reduce tragedies like this in the future, monsters like Ishii cannot go unpunished. If any of you ever invent a time machine, please go back and kill Dr. Ishii before he dies of cancer. Do do it for me. Do it for Bojangles. Number four. Had the war gone on a little while longer, Dr. Ishii may have persuaded his military superiors to carry out a large-scale biological warfare attack on the U.S. Imagine if the plague had hit San Diego, Seattle, Los Angeles. Now, if you're sitting in traffic in one of those cities right now, listening, you might think, well, eh, it wouldn't be so bad to take kind of, you know, thin things out a little bit around... No, but really think about how dangerous these types of weapons are. Like, I like The Walking Dead, but I don't want to live it. Please let no one be preparing biological weapons again. Number five, new info, new evidence of the Unit 731 war crimes was released by the Museum of Evidence of War Crimes this past August, a museum built on the uh, site of Unit 731 in Harbin, uh, in Harbin, China, including written confessions of germ war criminals, a transportation record of human experiments, old photos of unit soldiers, and an incubator for producing the plague. It happened, user rave taco, you dummy. It happened. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Well, that's Unit 731. It has been sucked. That one was painful, man. So much dark shit, and it didn't even, didn't even make the episode, all of it. Man, I came across so much more that it was, I didn't even include it. Kind of sad when a subject has so much torture and death that all that torture and death starts to just seem redundant. 
Uh, special thanks to Time Suckers Hunter Ebnett, Keegan Purcell, Ethan Sachs, Chris Cook, Jennifer Butler, Adam Baumhover, Josh Tangren, Austin Stork, Chris Reed, Will Brown, Leo Marler, and anyone else I missed for suggesting today's topic. I hope you liked it, you Lucifina worshiping suckers. Thanks to Sydney Shives for managing the Time Suck emails. Social media is always dependable as shit, that one. Uh, big thanks to Jesse Dobner for editing this episode. So thorough, so fast. Hit him up, Jesse Dobner at Outlook.com. J-E-S-S-E-D-O-B-N-E-R at Outlook.com for editing work. Uh, also, Time Sucker Jeremiah Haxard works with a great charity helping Lakota American Indian families on the Pine Ridge Reservation. This is a reservation Chief Crazy Horse was supposed to have moved back to when the U.S. government double-crossed his people with the Black Hills, you know, uh, deal. Uh, it's also the site of the 1890s Wounded Knee Massacre, if you've ever heard of that. And if you're interested in helping these proud people, if the Chief Crazy Horse episode uh, was a special one for you, you can go to www.familiesworkingtogether.org. Families Working Together helps through the improvement of housing, providing food, clothing, furniture, and household items, providing social activities for children. Their goal is to eradicate poverty by improving sustainable livelihoods through self-food production, housing, and sanitation improvement, and on-the-job training with an emphasis on enabling individuals to work towards becoming self self-sufficient. And again, that's all at that Pine Ridge Reservation for the Lakota people. Uh, Jeremiah is Choctaw, uh, and, and, and I don't know how much power he really has to hand out names, but... He did say in his email that uh, Walks with Bojangles is my new honorary Choctaw Brave name. And I'm going to fucking take it. I'm running with it. I like that, man. Walks with Bojangles. So thank you, Jeremiah. Uh, and the darkness continues on Monday. Uh, I had already picked it before I knew what this bonus episode would be. Normally don't, don't like to go this dark back to back. But, uh, you know, it's, it's just going to happen. It's BTK. BTK, a lot of you people have been asking for him since the beginning of the suck. The bind, torture, kill, serial killer, Dan Dennis Raider, the devil of Wichita. This dude is like the Zodiac Killer. Uh, if the Zodiac Killer would have kept tormenting the police with letters uh, referencing his superior you know, skills and kills over 25 years after he started. So if you like the Zodiac Killer episode, you'll, you'll like this one. He terrified an entire city for almost three full decades, and then he finally fucked up, thank God. And he's sitting in prison today, which is a bummer. He should have been executed. I know very little. Uh, I knew very little about him a week ago. Pretty fascinating right now. Pretty interesting story. Uh, and you can suck it right after you polish off those Thanksgiving leftovers. All right. Now, uh, time to see what the cult of the curious has been up to with some Time Sucker updates. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. First update. Some fat, fantastic new flat earth fuckery uh, sent to me by Derek Wright, uh, Danny Ovolsky, uh, Darren Shafay, and numerous other time suckers. A lot of people on Twitter sent this my way. Uh, a 61-year-old limo, limo driver slash complete fucking idiot named Mike Hughes has spent the past few years building a steam-powered rocket out of salvage parts in his garage. You heard that right. He's, he's built a steam-powered rocket out of salvage parts in his garage. <sighs> His first test of the rocket uh, will also be the launch date tomorrow, this Saturday, when he straps into his homemade contraption and attempts to hurdle over the ghost town of Amboy, California. He'll travel about a mile at a speed of roughly 500 miles per hour. Well, maybe. In theory, he will. And then, uh, I'm guessing, he will, he will possibly die in a fiery crash. He says if you're, if you're not scared to death, you're an idiot. It's scary as hell, but none of us are getting out of this world alive. I like to do extraordinary things that no one else can do. And no one in the history of mankind has designed, built, and launched himself in his own rocket. That's an actual quote. Oh, they sure have it, Mike, because it's really fucking dumb. 
Uh, they definitely haven't uh, if, they, if they're a limo driver and not a rocket scientist. And they haven't done it because, yeah, it's just, it's preposterous. No one has also ever tried to eat 10 pounds of their own shit in under three minutes. Or turn their balls into a pair of ear- earmuffs. Or opened a food truck that sells nachos made out of gravel and fingernail clippings because those ideas are also very stupid. And here's an even better quote from Mike. He says, I don't believe in science. <laughs> of course he says that. Uh, his main sponsor for the rocket is, is Research Flat Earth. He says, I don't believe in science. I, I know about aerodynamics and fluid dynamics. Yeah, sure you do. And how things move through the area uh, about the certain size of rocket nozzles and thrust. I love how he includes that. I, <laughs> like, I, I know about aerodynamics and fluid dynamics and, you know, how big a fucking the hole is at the end of a rocket. I got a tape measure. But then he goes, but that's not science. That's just formula. There's no difference between science and science fiction. That's another one of his real quotes. There's no difference between science and science fiction. God damn it. This guy is so dumb. He truly may be dead by the time you hear this. And if he is, uh, if he dies as you're hearing this, still not too soon to laugh. Still not too soon. You don't get to be this reckless and idiotic with your life and have anyone feel sorry for you if you die. Not one bit. Uh, He plans to parachute back down to Earth after launch and then announce a plan to run for governor. That's fantastic. And later he wants to go into space. So, you know, he can prove once and for all that the Earth is actually a, a flat disk surrounded by an ice wall, which is what he believes. Oh, flat earthers, you morons really do give the rest of us a lot of laughs. So thanks for that, I guess. Next update comes in from David. Uh, I'm going to say his name right here because he put it in for me. David Yesback. David Yesback, regarding me saying that Bigfoot couldn't have anything to do with the, the Dyatlov Pass incident because Bigfoot isn't real. You know, I said that because if he, I said if he was real. Why hasn't, you know, he showed up in at least one image from Google Earth? So Derek writes, or excuse me, David writes, Hey Dan, the Suckmaster Supreme, the, <laughs> the holiest of the left testicle. <laughs> Odd thought about Bigfoot and Yeti concerning your Google Earth remark. How many elephants have you found on Google Earth? How many whales, gorillas? The point I'm making is you don't really see animal life for the most part from satellites. I am not saying I believe a large ape lives in the forest. I'm just stating that a lack of evidence of something does not mean it can't exist. Yours truly, the moron of Michigan, David Yesback. And, and he included the moron of Michigan. I did not throw that. I did not disparage him. I like David. And David, you really made me think. Uh, that was a great point. Now, when that point first came in, I was like, damn, that's true. I, I have never seen an elephant on Google Earth. Maybe Sasquatches are out there. But, David, then I did Google finally. Uh, I Googled Google Earth elephants, and I found many. I found many pictures uh, taken from satellites of elephants. So many, so many pictures. Bigfoot, uh, not not on there, right? Uh, Bigfoot, not on the picture. Because I also googled that. Because I was like, okay, well, you know, let's let's be fair and let's 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 see if a Sasquatch shows up. If I if I Google Sasquatch, Google Earth, nope, just blurry images. So, ah, so I still I still don't think he exists. Or, or maybe he does. But like that old old Mitch Hedberg joke, uh, maybe he's just really blurry. Do you guys remember that joke? Yeah, Mitch Hedberg, man, rest in peace, that guy. Maybe maybe Bigfoot is blurry. That's the problem. It's not the photographer's fault. Bigfoot is blurry. And that's extra scary to me. Because there's a large, out-of-focus monster roaming the countryside. That was the best uh, uh, Hedberg impression I could muster up. Last update from a fellow Riggins, Idaho kid. Man, my old hometown, where I'm, where I'm uh, going to be for Thanksgiving. Uh, by the time you're listening to this, where I've been for Thanksgiving. Regarding my old high school mascot from Sam River High, the Savage. Uh, I, I said that in the crazy, cheap, crazy horse episode that when I graduated in 1995, this mascot was still very inappropriate. It was still a, a wild eyed, brave tomahawk in hand, looking ready to scalp. Cause that's a, that's what was painted on the gym wall. Well, apparently the mascot is still the savage, but it's also less offensive. 
Jordan Rosh wrote in saying, Hey Dan, as a fellow Riganite and time sucker, I love listening to this podcast. Thank you, Jordan. I just wanted to let you know that the Sam River High School mascot is still the Savage, but the artwork of a crazy-eyed Native American uh, has been replaced by blonde Scandinavians on furry ponies. The man has no shirt and no nipples. Keep sucking. <laughs> a blonde, nippleless uh, Sam River Savage. Less offensive, maybe? I don't know. Definitely weirder. Definitely weirder. Uh, thanks, Jordan, and thanks for listening in from Riggins. I love hearing that. And thanks to all of you who wrote in this past week, man. Sorry I can't fit uh, all your updates into the show. I will fit tons more into the secret suck when that comes out. Uh, it's going to be fantastic. Thanks, time suckers. I needed that. We all did. And that's all for today, guys. Uh, thanks for continuing to listen. Uh, I, by the way, when I read people's emails... Um, I just take what they what they saw. I, I you know if you listen to that cheap crazy horse that I've switched to American Indian, but I'm not going to be crazy about it and uh, you know recorrect other people's verbiage if they choose to say Native American. And if you listen to that episode, you also know you know that, that a lot of people are fine with both. So I just wanted to say that so I didn't get any emails uh, for that specifically. I'm sure there's other stuff I'll, I'll get emails for. Uh, but th- thanks for continuing to listen. Thanks for telling your friends so much. Seriously, I am I am so thankful right now about what you guys. Just for you guys and for you guys spreading this suck. Word of mouth spreads a podcast like nothing else. Uh, hope you did have a great Thanksgiving. Uh, don't torture and or kill anyone for any reason, including medical advancement. And keep on sucking, keep on sucking some more. Keep on sucking, keep on sucking, sucking, sucking. Keep on sucking, keep on sucking some more. Keep on sucking. Keep on sucking. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun... Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. At Capella University, you'll get support from people who care about your success. From before you enroll to after you graduate. Pursue your goals knowing help is available when you need it. Imagine your future differently. At capella.edu.